0: We now have the blessing of turning to God's Holy Word. Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning continues our study of 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 through 22 this morning. So this is God's Holy Word as he gave to the Apostle Paul, inspired him to write to the Corinthians. So as it was inspired by the Lord, it is the Infallible, the inerrant word of the living God, so let's attend with reverence to its reading. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying, then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather... That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. And let's briefly pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, which indeed is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we thank you that it reveals you to us, and it is not without power, but it is living and active and does not return to you void. And so we pray now as we have read your word and as I exposit it here, that we would grow in our knowledge of you, and thereby in our love of you and in our ability to serve you by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had last time studied the first 13 verses of 1 Corinthians 10, and in those verses Paul offered the example of ancient Israel in the days of Moses as a cautionary account. Uh, this recently... We were reading as we do to our little girls and and uh, I've been reading uh, The Child's Garden of Verses from Robert Louis Stevenson to to the girls and, and they went over to the bookcase and they pointed to the shelf where it was and there was a book next to it and they insisted they wanted me to read that one too. So I pulled it off the shelf, it was one that I'd gotten uh, many years ago, long before we had kids, but I thought, oh, that might be neat to have, and it's a book called Cautionary Tales, and I read the first poem to them. It was about a little boy who slipped his nurse's hand at the, at the zoo and ran away from her. He had this tendency to run away, and so while he was at the zoo, he ran away from his nurse, and he got eaten by a lion, and all of these Sorts of poems are there. They're cautionary tales like that. We got to see how the more they get more and more gruesome as they go along. So we stopped reading them <laughs> to the girls. But uh, God offers the, in the scriptures this account of ancient Israel in the wilderness and how they often rebelled as a cautionary account, a cautionary tale, kind of like that, written down for the benefit of believers in all ages. And Paul said, as we saw last time, especially. For those of us in this last age of the world from Christ's first coming to his return. And the main lesson that we learn in those verses uh, from the example of ancient Israel we saw was to take heed lest we think we stand but actually will fall. In today's reading Paul brings his argument around to draw some conclusions about the issues that he first raised in chapter 8. If you'll recall in chapter 8, you, you'll remember, uh, he dealt with matters of conscience, particularly in regard to whether it was acceptable for a Christian to eat meat from animals that had been sacrificed to idols. They had been offered in idolatrous sacrifices. And we saw on the one hand, since idols are nothing, Paul said, the Christian is free to eat such meat. And we'll find the conclusion The final conclusion to this a little bit later, we won't come to it this week, but it will involve saying, basically, it's a don't ask, don't tell policy. If you know that it's sacrificed to an idol, avoid it. If not, don't ask and just eat it. But here, we haven't gotten quite that far yet. But we saw before that, that Paul had said on the one hand, since the idol is nothing, it's perfectly fine for the Christian to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol. On the other hand, for the sake of the conscience we saw before of our brothers and sisters who do not have that kind of confidence, we would do better not to seem to be associated with the idolatrous sacrifices, and so it's better not to eat meat. And Paul said, if, if meat gives offense to my brother, I will eat no meat. We saw that our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ should override our desire to assert our own liberty. Well, Paul now gives another reason to avoid such associations with idolatrous sacrifices. Because we should be taking heed lest we fall, as we saw last time, we should simply, Paul says here, flee from idolatry altogether. We need to be careful that while asserting our own liberty of conscience, that we're not actually pushing ourselves, into a situation of temptation or into a relaxed attitude toward things that so grievously offend our God. Rather, Paul says, flee from it. So in this passage, Paul offers six reasons Christians should flee from idolatry that we'll get into. One is in order to apply the lessons of Scripture wisely, like the sorts of things we saw last time. Number two, because of the Christians' identity in Christ, we should flee idolatry. Third, because of individual Christians' identity with all other Christians, we should flee idolatry. Fourth, for the sake of the spiritual purity of the church. and Fifth, for the sake of the purity of the Lord's table. And then finally, in order not to provoke the Lord, we should, for those reasons, flee from idolatry. So Paul begins this passage with the command in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee From idolatry. Now, that term therefore begins that sentence tells us uh, this is a result of things that he's already been saying. Because of what I just told you, therefore, flee from idolatry. So, because the Christian needs to take heed, lest thinking we stand, we actually would fall, because we should learn from the example of the ancient Israelites. Because we should not lust after evil things, that's one of the things he just told us in the last passage, therefore flee from idolatry. Notice Paul calls the Corinthian Christians my beloved in that verse. Therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. So any criticism he's offering here for their behavior has not come from a position of self-righteousness or arrogant judgmentalism over them. It's coming from a genuine love for these people. He doesn't want them to bring God's displeasure upon themselves. He wants them to obey God because He loves them. Particularly knowing the danger of idolatry because He loves them, He desires for them to flee from it. We watch a lot of Children's programs, things with our girls, we limit their screen time, but but uh, there are some decent programs that are helpful, educational for them, and they'll learn about animals and things like that. And uh, there's some of those programs that'll teach them about snakes. But at their age, we want to tell them, well, you don't know which ones are safe and which ones aren't. So when you see a snake, flee. <laughs> so we run. We don't don't go near it. Get away from it. We do that because we love them. Right. Similarly, Paul is saying, when you see idolatry, get away from it because I love you. I don't want you to be harmed by idolatry. The verb he uses is the one that describes what soldiers do when they've been routed by the enemy. In ancient times when you had armies that were fighting face to face, this is not an organized, slow retreat. This is when When your army has been so defeated by the enemy that you just drop everything and run. It's dropping everything and running as fast and as far away as you can. When I was a psychology student many years ago, back in the mists of time, we we discussed a behavior known as psychogenic fugue. The psychogenic part just means that it originated in your psyche, in your psychology. The fugue part means flight, fleeing, something uh, running running away from something. If memory serves, the, the term described a condition in which a person seemingly just forgets who he or she is and just drops everything and runs to a different part of the world. It's a pretty rare occurrence, but it's not a conscious decision and it's not amnesia brought on by drugs or by a, a blow to the head or something like that. But it's a psychological running away from who you are, from your life. And Paul uses the the verb form of that exact same word, fugue. And in in regard to idolatry, Paul wants us, as it were, to drop everything and run away as fast as we can from idolatry. Now we noted many weeks ago what Paul said in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. So Paul here is not contradicting himself. He's not telling us to have no association with people who commit idolatry. Rather, he wants the Christian to, To have no association, he wants Christians to have no association in themselves with idolatry. Let there be nothing about you and your actions in your life that is idolatrous. Let there be nothing idolatrous in your life. So, that begs the question, what does Paul mean by idolatry? Certainly, all manner of things can become idols. Idols. And the scripture very broadly speaks at times about what idolatry is. Any time that we put something ahead of God, it becomes an idol to us. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, covetousness particularly is idolatry. But we see in this passage that the apostle is particularly concerned with the most crass form of idolatry. False religion. Sacrifices to other gods. Improper worship. The open worship of something or someone other than the Lord. Just stay away from it, Paul says. The things covered in the first and second commandments. You know, the first commandment is found in Exodus 20 verses 2 and 3. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. We need to be clear on what the, the Hebrew means there. It doesn't mean you shall not have any other gods before in front of me as as if to say as if to say you can have other gods just as long as they're not more important than I am. No, that's not what God's saying. It means in my presence. And where is the presence of the Lord? He's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. So we're not to have any other gods. As the Westminster larger catechism explains, and we won't have time to go into all the details of this, but it says the sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a God, idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching Him for God and our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to Him required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of Him, bold and curious searchings into His secrets, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affection upon other things, and taking them off from Him in whole or in part, vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, an insensibleness under judgments, hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using unlawful means and trusting in lawful means so we won't explain all these but think about carnal security being secure in your own ability using unlawful means or trusting in lawful means God gives us lawful things but we say for example lawfully we're supposed to come and worship like we are here but attending church isn't what saves you it's Christ that saves you we don't worship church we worship God Church is lawful means, but trusting in lawful means is idolatry. Carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels, or any other creature. All compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, sliding and despising God and his commands, resisting and grieving of his spirit, discontent and impatience at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature. So that's the that's the explanation of the first commandment in the larger catechism. Someday we'll uh, plan to in Sabbath school maybe to Go into detail and see what all those things mean. The second commandment is found in Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, the larger catechism explains, the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government and discipline, the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto Him, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it, and all monuments of idolatry. The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, in any wise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself, tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God of all or any of the three persons, either inwardly or in our mind, or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worshipping of it, or God in it, or by it, the making of any representation of feigned deities, and all worship of them, or service belonging to them, all superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it, or taking from it, whether invented and taken up of ourselves, or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever, simony, that's selling of church office, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinance which God hath appointed. If obviously we don't have time at this point to get into all of uh, the meanings of everything in those, or the proof texts from them, but there are proof texts. Uh, uh, and Lord willing, uh, we may do a study of the larger catechism someday in the adult Sabbath school class, but I encourage you to you know, sit down sometime with the larger catechism of questions and answers of 105 to 109, which is what we just covered there, and look up the texts it provides. You'll learn a lot. But for now, suffer, suffice to say, the, the things covered in uh, those explanations are what we flee from. We should flee from all of those things. Flee from idolatry. Especially the more open and crass forms of idolatry which are just obvious. The worship of false gods and false worship of the true God. Paul offers in this passage six reasons we should flee from that. Six reasons we should flee from idolatry. Number one, flee from idolatry in order to apply the lessons of Scripture. The therefore in verse 14 tells us we should flee from idolatry because of what Paul was just talking about. And that included the examples from Scripture of the behavior of the Israelites in the wilderness in the days of Moses. Look at what happened to them, therefore flee from idolatry. In verse 15, Paul writes, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. He's simply asking the Corinthian brethren to consider carefully what he's about to say, but we also see his clear Expectation is that Christians apply wisely the lessons of Scripture. Both what he referred to in the previous verses and what he says in the following verses. Apply these lessons well. Fleeing idolatry is a good application of the lessons of Scripture. So flee idolatry in order to apply the lessons of Scripture wisely. Secondly, flee from idolatry because of your identity in Christ verse 16 the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ the bread which we break is it not the communion of the body of Christ we'll come back shortly to what he means by cup of blessing and so on but for now notice that he's speaking of communion of fellowship of union with the blood and the body of Christ we'll also in the weeks to come when we get into chapter 11 we'll come back to those verses and talk more about the Lord's Supper and the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that's taught there. Everyone with saving faith is united to Christ. We're united to Him in His death, to which baptism points as well as the Lord's Supper. Romans 6.3 says, Or do you not know that as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So we're united to to him in his death and also then in his resurrection, as Romans 6.5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. You as a believer, if you do have faith in Christ, are so united to him that spiritually speaking you are already seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verses 4-6 through But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well if you're that united to Christ if you are so united with Christ that you're even considered to be seated with him in heaven now And he is the self-same God who authored the Ten Commandments. Well, how do you think he will react when you associate him who dwells in you with the worship of other gods? Or with any form of false worship? Flee from idolatry because of your identity in Christ. Three, flee from idolatry because of your identity with other Christians. Verse 17, for we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The bread in question here is not the physical bread of the Lord's Supper, but it's the bread to which it actually points. The true bread come down from heaven is Jesus Christ. And in the sense that each believer has a true spiritual union with Christ, he or she is a member of his body. And thus part, so to speak, of that bread. But you, as an individual Christian, are not a partaker of Christ on your own. It's never just me and Jesus. Right? Christians are sheep in a flock, we're not lone wolves. right? Your union with Christ is not an individual union. Instead, it's a union with everyone else who is also united to Christ. Christ is not one head of many bodies, but he's the head of one body. Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body, singular, the church. If one of us engages in idolatry, he actually corrupts the whole in a manner of speaking. That doesn't mean that God's going to hold you particularly personally responsible for the idolatry of a professing Christian halfway around the world. But there is a way in which if I engage in something ungodly, that I am bringing corruption into the body. Flee from idolatry because your identity with other Christians is a reality. There's a grave danger of damaging the whole church by the idolatry of one or of a few. Think of the medieval church, how swiftly idolatry and false worship spread through it and corrupted so much of it. Flee from idolatry because of your identity with other Christians. For flee from idolatry for the sake of the spiritual purity of the church. Verse 18 Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So he's saying observe earthly Israel which was, there was still a temple, when Paul wrote this, still a temple in Jerusalem where sacrifices were going on. In the Old Testament sacrificial worship, except in the case of the whole burnt offering, those who brought an animal for sacrifice and the priests who actually carried out the sacrifice, each received a portion of the meat from that animal to eat. It was, as it were, a sacred meal with the Lord. The part of the, the animal that's burnt on the altar was going to the Lord, symbolically. And then the other parts of the animal eaten by the priests and by those who offered it were eaten by them. And so each time a sacrifice happened, it was as if God's people were having a meal with him. It's similar to what we have in the Lord's Supper. The only... People who ate of those sacrifices were the people by whom or for whom the sacrifice was offered, the priest or the people who brought the animal to be sacrificed. There was a deep connection between the offering of the sacrifice and the partaking of that meal. The eating of the meat. Similarly, therefore, to participate knowingly in the sacrifices made to false gods, Paul says is to have fellowship in some way with that false god. And so while on the, other, on the one hand, the idol is nothing, he says, on the other hand, false religion is demon-inspired and demon-supported, so why would you want to be associated with that? The demons, as we talked about before, even impersonate the false gods so as to lead people away from the Lord and to garner worship for themselves. Verses 19 and 20, what, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? And the way he asks that, the implied answer is no. The idol isn't anything on the one hand. Therefore, the thing offered to it doesn't have any spiritual power to corrupt you or anything by itself. But then he says this, Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to Demons. So this is a demon-inspired religion. Why do you want to have anything to do with it? they say, they're the sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. If the church is to be pure, if our worship is to be pure, we must have no fellowship with the spiritual forces of darkness. Flee from idolatry for the sake of the purity of the church, the spiritual purity of the church. Number five, flee from idolatry for the sake of the purity of the Lord's table. In verse 16, Paul spoke of the cup of blessing and the bread which we break and associated them with the blood and the body of Christ, respectively. That is a clear reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in which Jesus established bread and wine as the representation of his body and of his blood and therefore of his atoning sacrifice of himself. And indeed the the term cup of blessing that Paul uses here actually refers specifically to the third cup in the Passover meal. When they were celebrating the Passover supper there was a particular form it took in Jesus' day. And the third cup that was shared by the people observing the Passover was called the cup of blessing. In verse 21, Paul writes, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. If the worship of idols is associated with demons, then what does participation in idolatry do to the fellowship that you desire to have with the Lord when you come to the Lord's table, when you come to take communion? when you observe the Lord's Supper. Flee from idolatry for the sake of the purity of the Lord's table. And then lastly, number six, flee from idolatry in order not to provoke the Lord. Verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The Old Testament is rife. Paul gave us a few references in last week's scripture, but the Old Testament is rife with accounts of the dire consequences it brought upon the people of Israel when they associated him with man-made worship, with the worship of false gods, or with uh, replacing the Lord with other gods. God brought great consequences, dire consequences on Israel when those kinds of things happened. Calamity after calamity befell ancient Israel because of the nation's idolatry and false worship. Remember the Explanation appended to the second commandment for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands the antecedent of thousands there is generations thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments God does not share in the worship of that is due to him. He does not share the worship due to him with other beings. He does not leave idolatry unpunished, he says. Flee from idolatry in order not to provoke the Lord' to jealousy. So flee from idolatry, that's our main point. Have no association with it. Do not engage in false religion or the practices that come from them. Do not seek to worship the Lord in any unauthorized way. As some of us in Sabbath school this morning read from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. There Moses told Israel, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go in to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So he's saying, don't look at how the pagans worship their idols and worship God that way. Absolutely not. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. The problem isn't just how extreme it got, though, but that it started by people doing what God had not authorized for his worship. And that's what the conclusion in verse 32 is. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. This is what we call the regulative principle of worship. The principle for everyday Christian life is a normative principle. If God commands something, of course it must be done. If he forbids something, it must not be done. But if he neither forbids nor commands a thing, you're free to choose whether to do it or not. We saw that before we were talking about freedom of conscience, liberty of conscience. But the biblical principle of worship is not normative. It's regulative, as we see there in Deuteronomy 12. That, that means that the things that we do as acts of worship in our covenant era have to be things that, commanded, that God commanded to, to be used in our covenant era as acts of worship either explicitly or by what we call good and necessary consequences from Scripture. Otherwise, we must consider them forbidden. Worship the Lord, worship Him alone, and only in His authorized manner. And you are going a long way toward fleeing idolatry. But definitely flee from idolatry. Drop everything, run from it as fast as you can, and flee to the Lord away from it. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us indeed to flee from idolatry. Keep us from all associations with false gods. Keep our worship of you pure. and Help us to be pure in ourselves and collectively. That we might worship only you and put nothing before you in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.